Esquire, and wrestling's premier photographer, Dr. Mike Leno. Dr. Mike, would you like to introduce our guest for tonight? I would, and I, I do want to say, uh, sort of apologize for really turning the show as a full, last week, full Gene LaBelle tribute. And uh, I mean, the guy was like everything to us in wrestling, but also MMA acting and stunt work. We'll talk about him maybe a little bit later towards the end of the show. Uh, but uh, we lost a number of other people uh, in the world. Uh, Olivia Newton-John, that movie Grease. I don't know if Darla, who I'll ex introduce in a second, knows. Uh, in Grease, the, the whole exterior scene was filmed at my high school, John Marshall High School, which was right near where all the studios were. So that whole outdoor carnival scene, which was primarily the end of that, uh, we lost uh, Dozer, that uh, amazing producer, musical. Uh, I mean, he composed so many of the songs at Motown, and there were quite a few other legends that lost. You know, Gene LaBelle hit especially hard. But in the wrestling world, we we are always on this particular show and my other one um, talking about having wrestling more inclusive and having more women in all aspects of wrestling, not just talent or referees, but promoters, ring announcers, fans, historians, et cetera, be more uh, involved, represented, inclusive and in everything. And, and we've had not as many female historians as I would like to see. You know, we had the late George Ann Macropolis, Diane Devine, uh, Linda Rufa, who was one of my uh, ringside photographer brethren, and Darla Staggs, who, has the ultimate, listen to her bio. I asked her to write this. Uh, she's a lifelong wrestling fan. I would also add a major historian. She was six months old when she attended her first live show at St. Louis's historic Keele Auditorium. She's six months old, but she got to see and be present for Pat O'Connor beating Dick Cowboy Dick Hutton for the NWA title. She attended matches throughout her childhood and teen years with her grandparents and parents. In 1974, she started going with friends uh, to the matches. The first wrestler she met and became friends with was the, the great, great, great NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Jack Briscoe, the pride of uh, Oklahoma. Uh, she uh, is a regular at CAC in the Thez Tragus Hall of Fame weekend every year in Iowa. Uh, she's lived in Minnesota since 2012, but was born and raised, of course, in the St. Louis, Met, Missouri area. And she soon is going to be retiring from her banking job so in July of next year after 42 amazing years. And then it's going to move to Florida where she'll enjoy her retirement. Darla Staggs, I wish you had been there during the Eddie Graham historic Florida uh, years, but welcome to the program. Welcome to the show. And um, you have quite the resume. I mean, did your family at least keep the program from that historic NWA title change? No, they didn't. First of all, thank you for letting me be on your show. I'm honored. And no, they don't. But um, not too long ago, my friend Herb Simmons did find a copy of it and sent it to me. And Herb, of course, what, what's the name of the promotion? He's been promoting forever. He uh, uh, was there, of course, when Sam retired and then uh, we sadly lost him, but uh, Larry Matisic uh, promoted. But the guy who got the office was Pat O'Connor, so they were having sort of a, a rivalry there until Larry joined uh, 
and was doing things for Vince McMahon and WWF at the time when they came into St. Louis. But uh, Herb has been like the glue from the classic days to now, promotes classic shows. He helps everybody, keeps in touch with everybody. Uh, so do, what's the name of his promotion and how often does he promote still? Does um, he have, uh, Southern Illinois Championship Wrestling. He has his monthly shows at their uh, little community center in East Carondelet, Illinois. But he also, I couldn't tell you how many other shows he uh, is promoter of where they have different fundraisers and stuff in the area. And he's also been doing some work with uh, some guys down in Tennessee. It was uh, Burt Prentice until Burt passed away and... Whoever has taken that over, I think Herb is still involved with them as well. Let me throw over to, to you, Russ, because uh, you didn't get a chance to talk too much last time because we were uh, just, and Darla too, I, that's why I had you as our sole guest tonight, because I think you would have gotten short shrift, uh, you know, trying to recall all of the stuff on Judo Gene LaBelle. But you met him a number of times. Any thoughts on him? Because the guy... I was writing some more of his obituary this week and adding that the fans in L.A. had no idea this guy was a badass, that he was an MMA god. They didn't even know why he was called Judo Gene LaBelle. He was just thrown out there with no explanation about 1968-69 to start doing the so-called locker room interviews with the talent. And he was kind of short, so like nobody knew this guy. And they never promoted that he's like working with Bruce Lee. Uh, who he met on the Green Hornet and training him in his gym, all kinds of stuff. And that he breaks uh, Chuck Norris in and also helps him get into TV. But what are your thoughts on him before, before I throw uh, over to, to Russ? I did meet Gene several times at CAC, but one year in particular, he was in Newton, Iowa at the uh, Tragos Hall of Fame before it moved to Waterloo. In fact, it was 2006. I was there with... Uh, Jim Melby, and I had the pleasure of sitting next to him at the banquet at his table that year. And oh my goodness, what a nice man and funny. Yeah, he was, uh, he was definitely funny. As Russ remembers, uh, every year, for those of us that work with him in the Los Angeles Hollywood Wrestling Office, the Cal Eaton, Jewel Strongbow, Mike LaBelle Office, from about 84, 85 on, he would send his annual Christmas card, his holiday card, but it would have a, a new patch, you know, like a three by five inch patch with a caricature of him doing something crazy, <laughs> like a, with a thought bubble or a speaking bubble, like a, a cartoon, you know, cartoon gene, you know, he'd have stuff like, uh, I need the money, hire me for your next movie. And, and, and we get these, so I saved all of them. But uh, Russ, let me throw over to you here. Uh, we're, you know, there we need more female historians, and um, you know we lost Georgie, but we've got you and Diane Devine. Uh, but anyway, Russ. So, um, what would you say is the the period of history that you're most interested in when it comes to wrestling? What What do you think is your your strongest suit as a historian? Um. First of all, I don't consider myself a historian, but I don't know. I like the, uh, probably the 70s, maybe early 80s, but mostly in the 70s. 
And what territories do you feel that you've you've got the most like uh, uh, knowledge of, or that you're most familiar with? Um, absolutely, the St. Louis territory, which was NWA. And um, we talked last week about how you're friends with uh, Barbara Goodish, right? I and and for those who are less initiated, Frank Goodish was better known to most of us as Bruiser Brody. And he did a lot of wrestling in that St. Louis territory, did he not? He did. But in St. Louis, he was not known King as Kong. Brody. Right. He was, he was King, King Kong Brody. I, I do He's remember Dick those days. Or Dick the Bruiser, I think. Although I, that changed when Sam retired. I think he uh, wasn't he primarily on Larry's shows as opposed to Pat O'Connor's when. Uh, yeah. Was... He, oh, yeah. He um, was mainly on Larry's shows after Sam retired. But. Um, you know, I think Larry actually only had maybe, he was just in it for a few months and then he went to work for Vince. That's what happened in our territory. Mike LaBelle, you know, the territory died a long, slow death with some good and not so good bookers. But December 82, he sold our territory a good year plus before he ever went national. Mike LaBelle sells the territory to Vince McMahon Jr in December of 82, which sounds kind of insane because he still hadn't started raiding talent and, you know, from all of them, particularly uh, the AWA and uh, Mid-Atlantic and, and so on. But um, Mike LaBelle was promised something that Larry actually got, you know, uh, in the selling it, uh, Mike LaBelle even told me, well, Vince told me that I, you know, since I was such close friends and associates with his dad and they were, you know, Michael Bell was in Vince McMahon Sr.'s hip pocket for a time in the 70s, but he was promised to be called like the local West Coast promoter, but that really didn't even last too long. You know, it was supposed to have lasted for a couple of years and it didn't last. But Larry, uh, did you ever talk to Larry? So he went to work and I guess he was doing local promotion and maybe uh, I'm not sure running room and stuff I'm not exactly sure what all he did for Vince but you know so he he actually worked for Vince for nine years but he also continued to work for Herb him and him and Herb ran the local promotion there and Frank Frank worked for Herb's promotion for years well uh, in fact I think he was at uh, Herb's show like the weekend before he died. Tell me about some of your experiences with Frank, uh, or if I can call him Bruiser or King Kong Brody. You can call him Frank. Well, you know, this is what's really strange. As close as Barbara and I are, I was never friends with Frank. I met Frank a couple different times, and um, the first time he was uh, wrestling at the chase, and when they brought him into St. Louis, they brought him in to be a heel. Well, the St. Louis fans wouldn't allow it. They they cheered him from day one. So I was at the chase and I was giving David Von Erich a ride to the airport. And um, so we get in the car and he says, Darley says, there's somebody else, you know, it's still kayfabe back then. He said, there's somebody else that needs a ride to the airport. He's going to the same place as me. He said, 
do you mind giving him a ride? I said, no, that's fine. So he says, well, just pull the car down the street and around the corner so nobody sees him. And I'm like, all right, what's going on? All of a sudden, I see in the rearview mirror, here he comes. And I'm like, holy cow, this guy's going to get in my car. And he got the car and he introduced himself as Frank. Very, very soft-spoken and very kind. But, you know, I never was around him a lot because he didn't hang out with anybody you know and if you talk to Barbara she'll and I think even in the book she mentions Frank was into saving money he didn't go out to restaurants he didn't go to the bars he would go back to his room and have his can of green beans and can of tuna so he he just didn't hang around with any of us can you also give us a little bit of um your experiences with David Flair you know he's someone that that gets sort of lost in the line. David Von Erich, the late great I'm, David. I'm sorry, David. I'm sorry, David Von Erich. Sorry, I, I, they, uh, and 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 a lot of people don't really know about the talent that he had because his career was so shortened in the ring. Um, my opinion on David, and I don't know if people agree with it or not, but I truly think he was the best out of the Von Erich boys. And, you know, I tell people, I kind of joke, I say, I'm probably the only female in the St. Louis area that was not a fan of the Von Erics. I never was a fan of theirs. Um, I just wasn't, you know, and people find that kind of odd because they were, they were pretty popular in St. Louis, but. They were huge, all three of them. They were, but I was a friend of David's and. I even though you know he wasn't muscular like Carrie or Kevin, he was excellent in the ring. He, uh, you know, he, he was doing that in Super Over. It was very similar to the Oates brothers, Ted and Jerry, in uh, say about '73 through '76, and that's about the time '76, '77 when the Bon Erics came in. But the Oates brothers were like the rock and roll express white meat baby faces that were just beloved in St. Louis, yes, you know, like you local heard. product, if you remember them. So do you remember when, uh, I don't know if you know it, but when Marty Jannetty first started, he was billed as Marty Oates, the youngest brother of the of theirs. I didn't know that a third one. Did they ever have a, a six man person match? With- um, Party in there? I don't remember. He didn't wrestle in St. Louis very much, but when he first came there, that's what he was known as. I don't know if Ted and Jerry trained him or what, but he was Marty Oates. Um, and uh, Shawn Michaels, the very first strap he ever held, to my knowledge, and he said it, he agreed, as did Woody Farmrose for Bob Geigel in KC, Kansas City, with Woody Farmer. The very first singles or tag, and it was before the AWA or any of that stuff, because he was there and uh, on the cards. Do you recall him? Did, did you also go to Kansas City? Like they had great territory and all of that affiliation with Geigel and Harley and Bulldog Bob Brown between the KCs and the. It was called Sam's. It was called the St. Louis Wrestling Club. I went. I went to Kansas City a lot during the time that um, Eddie Gilbert was down there. And, and then, he was, I was there at his debut at the Keel. It was underneath 
the, the big card of the main, uh, uh, pretty sure, no, it wasn't the Jack Briscoe rematch with uh, Baba. It was, uh, it was the night that Jack Briscoe dropped the strap, the Missouri State title to Dickie Slater and Harley and Dory had a, a very long match. The one where Dory lost his boot and kept wrestling. I remember that. Yep, I was there sitting right in the front row. Eddie and Jimmy Cornette were the first two guys to subscribe and join my Tolis Brothers fan club. This was before even Eddie started shooting ringside. Corny, I think, already was. This was like in 73, mid-73. But I was lifelong friends with Eddie. He even called me from Puerto Rico twice, um, you know, days before he passed. I saved all the Christmas. I mean, the guy sent me Christmas and birthday cards, as did Georgie and a few other friends, Gene LaBelle. Saved all of those from Eddie. And, um, you know, it just breaks my heart. But, you know, Eddie was such a brilliant mind. If you remember, he was being apprenticed by Bill Watts, who let him have the book for a time. Bill Watts really thought he had a brilliant mind. And uh, Tommy, such a sweet guy. And you just let me know. I had no idea that Tommy passed four years ago, which is heartbreaking because I would see them every year when Eddie died. Dennis Coraluza, who used Eddie on top all the time against like Dutch Mantel and Terry Funk and, and Abby, etc., had a, an annual Eddie Gilbert tribute memorial weekend in Jersey. And Peggy, Tommy, and Doug and the the uh, daughters, uh, Doug and Tom, Eddie's sisters, uh, would all be there in mass. And they're great. You know, talk about great families that don't. You know, we normally think of the Anawahe, you know, the Peter Mavia's family and the Hearts and the Von Erichs and uh, Bob Armstrong's family. But there's quite a few other good ones. Yes. And one thing I want to bring up that's very cool, speaking of St. Louis, and it all ties in with, with you there. I don't know if you're going, but Billy Corgan, uh, again, Smashing Pumpkins rock god who has enough money and ethics and stuff. He's running NWA. He's having a second big weekend next weekend in St. Louis, as you may know. But I was talking to baby doll, Nicola Roberts, who she wants people to know. And I didn't think what a, a huge family she has. She was the daughter of two wrestlers, two outstanding wrestlers, Nick Roberts and um, Lorraine Johnson. And Lorraine's middle name was Anne. So that's where Nicola and she thinks she's the only one in the world with that name. It was a combination of Nick and Lorraine and Johnson's, uh, you know, L.A. That's where the L.A. came from. But now baby doll Nicola Roberts' daughter is wrestling. Nicola started wrestling in Dallas for the Von Erics as well, they initially billed her as Andrea, the female giant, which she hated. And then towards the end, before she started becoming a valet, she was actually wrestling under her own name. She kind of didn't want to diss Andre at all. But then she married Sam Houston, his brother, uh, excuse me, she married uh, yeah, Sam, whose brother's Jake Roberts, the sister, Rock and Robin, who held the WWF women's title, their father, Grizzly Smith, who had another brother in the wrestling business. But uh, that's quite the family there. But that is the first ever on the planet, third female gen. So Lorraine Johnson to Nicola Roberts to now Nicola's daughter as a wrestler. There's nothing like it in wrestling where you have three women and the third one, you know, her mother and grandmother were both female wrestlers, let alone her grandfather and biological father. So that's really amazing. But it's a huge, huge 
card next weekend. Uh, we'll hopefully get into promoting it. Do, do you know much about it? Or are you going, Darla? I am not going to make it. I would, I'd love to be there, but I just can't make it. But it is kind of cool because there have been various incarnations. Russ is also aware of them. Uh, I was there for like all of the the 90s NWA. Dennis Coraluzzo. I think the only guy there with um, original NWA clout was uh, uh, Steve Ricard from uh, Australia, New Zealand, and uh, you know, parts of Malaysia. Uh, but there was Howard Brody, who uh, just had quadruple bypass, and he's yeah. not doing well. And then there was, uh, you know, you know, and, and there was a bunch of uh, territories. I think David Marquez then tried to uh, work with Simon Inoki at, at, on the NWA, and like even the Russ APW had like an NWA affiliation. All of these indies around the country, and then it all fizzled for a good 15 years. And now Billy Corgan has resurrected it, and you can't really claim lineage to Sam's true NWA. But it's nice that they're doing all of the little nuanced things to make it as close as possible. This will be the second time they're going back there. Uh, they had the historic thing with Flair and Medusa and everybody at, at the chase. But I don't think it was the original venue where I, I shot the TV. The TVs were, uh, were the TVs Saturday or Sunday afternoon, evening for wrestling at the chase? They were, uh, they were taped on Sundays, so... Were you were you at those when they were actually in the TV studio? Yeah, yeah. For uh, seventy five, I think was Ox. It was the weirdest thing. I, I had no idea why they just had a heel heel match on TV, free TV, out of the blue. Von Raschke against Ox Baker, with like no buildup. They just threw it out there. But I, I think that was the year seventy five that I shot uh, the first time. So, in the studio. so where they're actually having this at? is in the Corazan room at the Chase Hotel, which is where they were actually filmed starting in 1959. So that is the original. And the, original. the TV studio was connected to the Chase Hotel. It was owned by um, Ted Kapler. Oh. Was he the guy that owned the... Uh now, I, I should mention, too, Russ doesn't even know this. The one and only convention I threw, I spent about a year in the making of it. And that might bring me into, I, I don't even want to mention it. But <laughs> Harry White did help me out a number of times. But then he got his claws via Julie O'Connor on the uh, Missouri State title belt, which I've been checking. It's still in Japan. He, he ended up getting oh. it. She just gave him that stuff in the Central States title, but unless you've heard differently, it was sold to a Japanese fan. Harry I, sold it. I have no idea who it was sold to. And then Mike Rogers, who you know from Oregon, who we honored in 2019, he got the Central States tag belt. So you at least know it's in good hands. And I, I think, he's, yeah, he's going to be donating it to the Iowa Museum. But you came to my 19, uh, it was May of 92, not 91, the Sam Munchnik tribute weekend, a three day thing. Yes. And, uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and a lot of folks don't know, you know, because we had all the surprise stuff like the, the transition. So Jack Lance at WWF brought down a ton of talent, including Backlund. And a lot of it was during the day. They weren't at our all at our evening functions. But uh, uh, Barry Windham, Kurt Hennig, Mike Rotunda, Kamala, 
Ted DiBiase, but Backlund DiBiase honed in on wanting to sit down and talk to Killer Kowalski, who was a huge legend in Tri-WF and WWF. But Toots Mont's widow, who was very instrumental in Vince Sr.'s earliest years with Jess McMahon, etc. Toots Mont widow was at the event. Did you even know? I, I don't know where she came in from. So I'm just assuming she lived in St. Louis proper after he died. I have no idea. Major, major. But it was neat because guys like Thes was my lead MC, and I had other folks there. If you remember Ernie Ladd and uh, a lot of talent. Danny Poffo was there. Yeah, uh, Koloff, Ivan Koloff, my Deus, Al Costello, Pepper Martin, uh, who had no history there, but he did love Sam and you know had worked with him, and uh, you know a ton of other guys. Rock. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, that was neat that you were there. There was St. Louis. Do you know, my who, favorite I was, place. Do you know who I was there with? I was no. there with Juanita Sapphire. Right. Juanita, uh, Juanita Wright, right? Was that yes. her last name? Juanita Wright. She what? And she was like before, I don't know how she got hired. What's, do you know the story how she got hired up there? Because she was like one of the most famous, visible, you know, out so, there, St. So, Louis fans. Yeah, everybody knew Juanita, and she had already been in the business. She was actually um, the first female referee in the state of Missouri. She uh, also wrestled, she actually wrestled as Prince's Dark Cloud for Herb Simmons. She did that for years, and during that time with um, Larry working for Vince, I guess he, Vince had, you know, told Larry what they were looking for, and Larry says, I got the perfect gal for you, and, you know, Larry and her had kept in touch, and he called her and said, this is what we got. Are you interested? She jumped at it. She, Vince flew her up there, and she met with I don't know who else she met with, but they hired her right on the spot. That was supposed to have been a rib on uh, Dusty for whatever reasons, but she was such a sweetheart. When I went in a couple of times to shoot Debbie Combs and Cora's little indie shows, they weren't mm -hmm. little, they were always packed mm -hmm. in Nashville. She came in to, uh, to manage Cora and Debbie uh, as the babyface against uh, Don O'Day and I forget the other female uh, heel. And, um, was this over, you know, as, she was over everywhere she went. She was a real character and um, real sweetheart. So I didn't even know she was there because, you know, running around, it's if Russ, if you've ever, I don't know if you've, well, you've never thought a convention, you've been with me at conventions, good and bad, but um, that one was nice because the wrestlers all trans themselves in. They paid their way, they paid for their hotel, their meals, the uh, awards dinners and stuff. Oh, not because of me, but because of Sam and their love of Sam, and they wanted to be there. And um, and that just shows you how much everyone loved him. Oh, he was a great man. When when I first came in '73, uh, he was like Paul Bosch. He said, "Do you want to take some pictures of me in my office?" And do you remember? Did you ever get to go in Sam's office? Or I was I was at his office once. There was some memorabilia and, and stuff in there. I have the pictures. I should I should have brought them up. 
but that I can send you. And um, and while we're doing, you know, I'm doing this serious interview for Norm Keitzer and Jim Melby's magazines uh, with Sam. Ox Baker came in. This was during the day, and he started doing shtick, even though he's in his street clothes. And you know, <laughs> Sam was like rolling his eyes because Sam had so much credibility, more than any wrestling promoter I can think of with the sports world because he was a baseball writer. He had great respect. I think he was even president of the various sports associations, newspaper associations. I mean, he was a big deal, uh, not just globally, but you know, just starting in, in St. Louis, the state of Missouri. He was, he was know, a big deal in St. Louis. Big, he still, he big, still big. is. I, I hope, I think that's, you know, there's a X number of cities. I always think of Toronto and Montreal and, and uh, it really anywhere in Tennessee, uh, Chicago. But, you know, St. Louis, I think they really revere their history. The reason, too, that I almost preferred, I did prefer Sam's over even Eddie Graham's, was the level of talent from top to bottom was always stellar. Everybody knew that was, other than, in Japan, the most prestigious place to work was for Much Naked Keel. Yeah. You know, before Larry started running, I, I, you know, I forgot what year it was. They had to move it to a larger venue at different times if it was a huge card. Um, it was, well, yeah. it was called the Checker Dome, but right. it, was, it was called um, the St. Louis Arena first, and then another Purina bought it. And they renamed it the Checker Dome, and it is no longer there. It's been they tore it down years ago. So the original keel isn't there, but they have a, a newer keel. But do you remember the stand? Or what would be max attendance at the original keel and the original, you know, max? Um, I think the original keel held like between. 13 and 14,000 and the arena held like 20, 21,000. What would do you remember the earliest cards that were at the checker dome? Was it just, I mean, cause the matches were always big time. I mean, even it is TV. You remember that, uh, wasn't it? I think it was at wrestling at the chase where, uh, Kaniski and Jack Briscoe faced the funks and that wasn't at one of the big venues that was on TV. Yeah, that was TV. That is, you know, you, you don't really get bigger than in terms of legends and four NWA champions in one match. But and Sam, the, didn't, he didn't have a lot of cards at the arena, but, you know, he knew when he was going to have a major, major card and needed more space and he would sell it out. His re, Were you at his retirement match? The, no, uh, sadly I was not. What was the the show was a lot of big names came in for that. I was there for the Bruno Harley race Broadway, which was Bruno's really, to my knowledge, his only NWA challenge. But that particular tour there was so big. It was when Bruno had asked McMahon to take the strap off him the first time. And Bruno had between 71 and December 10th, 73, when he you know, took it back. He was begged to come back, took it back from Stan Stasiak. But he had that period when he came in for, I don't know how many, five uh, total keel cards for Sam. The first one, I think, was against uh, Dick Murdoch. And then 
didn't he take the mask from uh, Dr. Big Bill Miller? And yep. then there was a Koloff match, and then I guess maybe it was just four. Um, but did Bruno wrestle at the at the the chase on TV or no? I don't think he ever wrestled on TV. But the fans, the fans knew their wrestling to know this was a big thing, Bruno coming in. Yes. And, and Larry made sure of it because the programs, and Larry wrote the programs from start to, to finish, and I'll throw over to Russ, but they were, for that period of time, they were not markish. They were not talking down to fans. They He was treating them as well-educated people. And... Um, you know, sure, he was like putting over stuff, but he did it in an intelligent, respectful way, which I didn't see with anybody else's programs, to be honest. And then, you know, obviously when Norm Keitzer and Jim Melby took over nearly everybody's programs for a time in the latter part of the 70s, they had, you know, good text. But for local, I never saw anything to that level where you were not treating them as marks, but as human beings and educated ones at that. Larry did a very fine job. I mean, Larry was a great fit, but look at some of those other announcers there. Jerry Giola and his brother Mickey, but they work for Sam. Joe, baseball legend, who then becomes host of the Today Show with a, a number of other folks. Uh, do you recall that or were you too young? Do you remember when Joe no, was Mickey? I was, I was too young because you had to be um, 16 years old before you could ever get into the chase because it was, you know, such a small place. So by the time I started um, going to the chase, it was Mickey Graggiola and Larry doing it. So yeah. I never had the opportunity to see the others. And last thing for those annual NWA conventions, I don't want to forget this. A lot of people don't really know because Vince Sr. broke away from the NWA, you know, all of that stuff, 61 uh, with a Thez, Buddy Rogers deal. But Around 77, when they shortened the name from Tri-WF Worldwide Wrestling Federation to WWF, that's when, uh, and Vince had never not been friends or talking to Sam Munchnik and Vern Gagne, but Sam and Vern convinced Vince Sr. to start coming and attending those last few years when Sam was president. And that was a big deal, having Vince Sr. there. And uh, it just points to, you know, a lot of us being bitter at the time in 83, 84, when Vince went national, disrespecting all of those barriers. And of course, he never went to any NWA conventions. But I'm not here to trash Vince Jr. Russ, let me throw back to you. You know, don't can I just say one thing about Vince? I, you know, I don't want to trash him either, but I will say this because I've heard over the years that, you know, Vince came in and he stole, he stole St. Louis wrestling and blah, blah, blah. And he ruined St. Louis wrestling. Vince McMahon, by the time he bought St. Louis wrestling, he did not ruin it. It was already ruined. Because, and not to trash talk them, but, you know, when Sam retired and Geigel and Harley and Pat took over, they wanted to run St. Louis wrestling like they ran Kansas City. You couldn't, you can't do that. You cannot take Bulldog Bob Brown and put him in a main event at Keel Auditorium. That don't work. Yeah, he was on the undercards. Yeah, so, you know, in my opinion, it wasn't Vince that ruined St. Louis wrestling. And before Vince took it over, I think, and I had kind of quit going, 
But I think Crockett was in there, had something going on with them too. Russ. Okay, Russ. Yes. Um, well, I wanted to, to find out what, in your opinion, made St. Louis, you know, when you think of, of, of the great territories, I think you have, you know, obviously New York and you have Florida, but I think in that third tier, you have St. Louis. Why St. was St. Louis, Louis the most athletic with the least amount of gimmicks? But what, but what is, do you think about the, the, the city of St. Louis and your uh, personal experience there that set St. Louis apart from other territories? Because, like Mike was getting ready to say, um, Sam did not like gimmicks. He didn't. He didn't have. I mean, he had the chic. I think on maybe two cards, and you know, he starts throwing the fire. That's not Sam's thing. And the people in St. Louis, they were so used to the way that Sam did. Th he had all of the number one guy. I mean, there wasn't anybody that he didn't bring in. And I've heard some of the guys say they would fight to get on a St. Louis card because Sam, not only did he treat them with respect, he would, when it came to payoffs, it, you know, he would tell them what their payoff was going to be. But if he made a few dollars more than what he anticipated, he gave the guys their fair share all the way down to the last penny. He didn't cheat anybody. He didn't, he didn't lie to them. He was, he respected the fans. And I, you know, I've been to a lot of different areas where the promoters, they could care less about their wrestling fans. And the one word that Sam hated, and he never used or referred to his fans as marks. He hated that word. But, and Sam always, he always made time, no matter how busy he was, if you were, they used to have an entrance that the guys went in at the keel and the fans all stood around the stage entrance, you know, seeing the guys come in. When Sam came in, he, if you stopped and wanted to talk to him, he would stand there and talk to you. He treated you like human beings. And I don't know, the people in St. Louis, they, they loved it. And what do you think that there's a certain expectation of the people of St. Louis that makes them different fans than the kind of fans you'd find, say, in Kansas City, you know, um, their approach to it? I think so. And I think, I think it's because everyone, you know, they knew how he was and how he ran his business. But and do you I think also that the, the St. Louis audience is maybe more of a, of a more uh, open to that sort of thing? Might well, be a well, little bit more yeah, in the working class. It's changed in the last three decades. So it was an, until the end of the St. Louis, you know, athletic club or wrestling club. And I, I also want to find out what do you feel are the top matches that you saw in person when during that during that time frame? Well, my number one match will always be anytime Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. fought. They put on one heck of a match. They would get it, you know, usually they'd start out scientific and then they'd do a little bit of brawling and they could go for an hour anytime 
they worked with each other no matter what. They always did. So they were, that is my all-time favorite match. And um, I enjoy, you know, it's kind of weird because I like a lot of different stuff. I enjoyed watching the High Flyers. I tell people to, to this day that they'll always be my number one tag team. I loved Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. They came in from the AWA. I, you know, it just depended. I, I like heels part of the time and part of the time I like the baby faces. I loved any match that Dick Murdoch fought. I saw some things I'm sure you'll remember like against Bobo, but um, gosh, so many cool things. I have one memory though, because Russ wants to about Brody, Brody in the dressing room on that uh, that other show that I was talking about, the one where Jack Briscoe, very good match because Dickie Slater was good. And it was a shock because we had no, nobody tipped us up to it that Briscoe was going to drop the Missouri State title to uh, Dick Slater. But uh, Brody was on the card. I forget uh, if it was like a tag with Dick the Bruiser. Uh, I also saw Bruiser team with Bobo there, you know, and for a guy who revered legends, I mean, St. Louis, who always got that kind of thing. But but you saw a lot of up and comers too. Um, you know, I think the KC office because of the close relationship. I'm talking about on Sam's cards with guys like Mike George, Easy Ed Wiskowski. Uh, we mentioned uh, uh, the Oats boys. So I didn't either. I forgot or I didn't even know that uh, Marty Janetti that part of it. But uh, Akio Sato, who's married to Betty Nikolai, Akio Sato was on a, a lot of those. But yeah, were you were, were you already physically going when like Johnny Valentine, and he was you know heel in many territories. But uh, when he turned face in St. Louis, you know it was big. He'd have matches with guys like Harley Race and and Bruiser that were just you know, absolutely incredible for that time period. Um, I saw him a few times, but that was before I started. So when I turned sixteen is when I. I didn't, I did not miss a match at the keel or the chase from the time I turned 16 till the time Sam retired. But um, I remember Johnny as a kid and seeing him on TV. You know, I don't know if you remember this guy or not, but when I was really young, my favorite was John Paul Henney. Oh, yeah. No, he was a big deal in St. Louis. As yes, was. If if they were big, they came into the keel. And often if they were, you know, over with the fans, but also excellent technicians. And uh, one thing I want to say are two things, and you can comment on them, was during the summers, I think it was, Sam wouldn't run and he would show other promotions TV during the summers. It was incredible. He might, I mean, he even showed Chic TV. And I recall the Chic thing, was Sam told Eddie, it was more some business uh, because Eddie was battling Dick the Bruiser in that territory war in Detroit. So he came in, it was more a business thing, but Sam told him, you know, he didn't want any brawling outside the ring, which Sheik was infamous for. And I think like the first thing he did, at, I think it was at the chase. I forgot, yeah, he did Keel, which was what, Saturday night and then the chase on Sunday, the taping? No, Keel was Friday night. And okay. the taping was Saturday? Sunday. Sunday. Okay, so there's a day lag, but he did that, and then he never was welcome back. But the <laughs> other thing was Sam's last show. 
Can you remember what the matches were? You mentioned that earlier. It was a big deal because people came all over for his retirement show. Sort of like Paul Bosch's retirement show was out of this world. But I was not at Sam, so I don't recall the card. The, re the main event was Flair and Brody. Do you yeah. remember the other matches too? Oh my gosh, Mike, that's been so long ago. I don't remember. Yeah. But Brody, so here's the thing with Brody in the locker room on that 77, uh, I think it was August of 77 show I shot. And like everybody's in the back, but the show was, the, Sam never started late, but it almost the, uh, the chance of that happening because Flair was coming in on a Crockett private jet. And I thought since his accident, he wasn't doing that, but he was on Crockett's private plane and he was bringing in Kenny Patera from the Carolinas. I don't know if you remember, but they got in late and they were causing a fuss in the back. And, you know, Brody just kept looking up at the sky. Uh, Frank was kind of upset and I captured photos of him making that face as they come in. You can see he's looking at himself combing his hair in the mirror, but you see <laughs> Patera and Flair come in and he, I think he used some colorful words like, oh, you assholes just finally arrived. You've been holding up the show. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah. Frank was, spoke his mind. He was polite, but he spoke his mind. He always. Well, you know, he didn't he didn't take no crap off nobody, that's for Ooh. sure. Ooh. And Russ, just to tell you the kind of guy, I don't know how much you know about Sam Mushnick, but um when Frank's baby was born, him and Barbara's only child. Jeff. Jeff. Frank was scheduled to be on the Keel show that night. And en route to St. Louis, the baby was born. I think this is how it goes. Yeah. The baby was born. And I don't know who called Sam to let him know. And when Frank got to the keel, Sam says, I got you a flight. I want you to get on it and go home. Your baby has been born. You're not working the show tonight. Wow. And Sam, Sam sent him home to be with... Uh, Barbara and Jeff at the hospital. I mean, Sam, you don't see no. that much humanity from promoters these days. No, not at all. Never. No, no. There was another guy who was beloved, and I'm sure you met him, Papa Gus Karras, working for Geigel. Everybody loved him. He was a promoter yes. for some of the smaller towns like St. Joseph, etc. But he was beloved. Paul Bosch, definitely, and Tunney in Toronto. And I really, maybe Eddie Graham, because people just respected the hell out of him, but he was difficult to talk to, not like Sam or Gus Karras or definitely Bosch was a sweetheart. I don't know if you got to meet Paul Bosch. I met Paul Bosch. Um, what year was it? They had a WFIA convention down there. And I'll tell you what, Paul. Uh oh, she froze. Uh oh, say, say that again. You kind of froze for a second. Oh, so they had a WFIA convention in Houston one year, and Paul Bosch rolled out the red carpet for us. He was a real class guy too. Yes, he was. He was. He was super nice guy. We lost. That was the time uh, I met. Uh, we lost his his widow. Um, I heard that a couple of years ago and we worried what happened to their son because Joey Bosch was like deaf and blind, but he could, right. he could hear enough to where like, if he heard piano, just one song, he could play it note for note, you know, one of those savants. 
And at CAC, when we were in LA all of those years, when I started going in 87, they were always a presence. And then when Paul passed, uh, Valerie and, and uh, Joey came and he would be like playing the piano and singing before the meal, before everything started. And then during the interim, when people are at the bar, before the awards were given out and we worried what would happen to Joey when she passed. But she was a sweetheart. That's yeah, I'm, I've met her. They, her and Joey were at a few of the CACs in Vegas since yeah, I've been they, But it wasn't like every single year in LA. We moved no. from Los Angeles in 2000. Carl moved us when co-founder Art Abrams passed uh, in 1999. And, and then we moved to Vegas because Carl liked Vegas and you know we never left, but that was the year 2000. And uh, Jason Sanderson was the one that got us that big swanky hotel. He won that big lottery and uh, used some of his winnings so we would have like a real fancy reception. Because CAC was only a one-night deal. Really? 2000. It was just a Saturday night thing at, at the very last X amount of years, eight, nine, ten years at the Sportsman's Lodge in the L.A. Valley. Prior to that, CAC was just a lunchtime, like every three, four months, the guys would get together at Little Joe's or the Spaghetti Factory in downtown L.A. No money collection, you know, nothing. It was just a place to uh, put eat aside, break bread, have a beer, or a glass of wine with your brothers. And it was only the boys. And, I knew and that. Carl, yeah. When Carl got in there in 91, uh, things changed a bit after Mike Mazurki passed. And then it was, you know, different. But... Until we moved it to Vegas, it was just a one-night thing, and it was <clears throat> uh, Mike and the other the, the true founders. It was a third wrestling, a third boxing, and a third movie TV people, or our real R E E L uh, membership. And we would have the night, the one Saturday night awards thing was uh, divided into those three categories for awards, and we fit it in. We crammed all that in into just three and a half hours, you know, instead of the two night awards thing it is now. But typically at the, the Sportsman's Lodge bar on the Fridays, and I'll shut up, uh, we would have the guys like just tell old stories. You know, there was no functions. There was no daytime classes, nothing. But one year, I think it was 87, was when Piper, Fred Blassie, and John Tolis, who were doing the state-of-the-art promos in their day, they were all trading promos in the bar the Friday night before the big Saturday night, one-night-only CAC annual thing. And back then on our board, you know, when I was on it, the 80s and 90s, late 80s, 90s, uh, uh, Maria Bernardi was the club secretary. Uh, she made us all drive in with threats that we'd get kicked off the board. We had to go down to L.A. for board meetings three to four times a year, either drive or fly. And that was when guys like Killer Kowalski and Gorilla Monsoon and Blassie and Dick Beyer and Penny Banner and Ida Mae Martinez and others we're all on the board with Thez and Bastine and uh, et cetera. So let me uh, shut up and throw back to Russ as we close out. And also, before we close up, Darla, let's, well, Russ, let me ask your questions and ask her to plug all her social media, anything she would like to plug. Oh, okay. Um, well, uh, my question to, to, to uh, Darla is, um, do you watch any wrestling today? Do you watch any any modern wrestling? Very seldom do I watch any. I mean, I have DVDs I'll watch if I need a wrestling fix. I am going to order uh, the NWA 74. I 
ordered the one on pay-per-view for 73 that they had. I thought it was excellent. So I am going to order this one, but um, I don't really watch any of it. I, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day and it's, it's just not the same. I mean, the guys aren't the same. They don't, I don't know. I just don't watch watching it. AEW on Wednesdays and Fridays. You might enjoy that a little bit. Maybe I know that's time. what you told me, but you know, I don't have cable TV, so I oh, you can watch. You can just go to YouTube and AEW puts either whole matches or snippets. You can get caught up. They have like a highlight package of the Wednesday. Oh, I'll have to check that out. But right. speaking of um, this NWA 74, I don't know how much you know about Billy Corgan. I didn't really know anything about him. And I, when I first heard he was taken over, I'm like, seriously, a rock musician? He's going to be a... He was fronting the Chicago Indie for years and years. Yeah, so he had, Bill Apter did an interview with him and posted it on Facebook the other day, and I watched it. That guy is really interesting. He knows he knows his wrestling history. I was I was rather impressed with him. He nearly bought uh, TNA and was a part of there for for quite a while. He was on TV every week as versus like a babyface, I don't know, part of the so-called TNA committee and then uh, then he uh, starting to do heel character stuff and then I don't know he had words with Dixie when she was selling out he wasn't able to purchase it but that's when he started working with jeff jarrett and, and others but he does a great job that is uh night one is next saturday of nwa 74 night two is yeah. uh, on that sunday from four to eleven so uh there's things happening all day long lots of autograph meet and greets uh it is uh, at the coruscant ballroom as you said at chase park plaza royal Sinesta. In St. Louis, Mo, and uh, you know it'll be packed with stuff. I think Trevor Murdoch is still NWA champion. Yes. I was supposed to have met Nick Aldis, formerly known as Magnus in TNA, but I forget who. Uh, who do you know who uh, Trevor's defending against on this card? Is it? Uh, uh, oh gosh, he worked with WWE. Right. He was. Uh, he just had a broken. Uh, Tyra, what they call it, Tyrus? It, Tyrus, is Tyrus, yeah, big Tyrus has got yeah. a new book out called Just Tyrus. That's who he, that's who he's defending the title again. I love, I do. You ask about uh, current day stuff. I do love Nick Aldis. I've seen him wrestle on a few occasions live, and I I like him a lot. And you remember he presented to Dory Junior uh, at the 2019. Uh, Russ, any more questions before we have her plug anything and everything? Yes. Um, I, yeah, I wanted to know what, first of all, what are your future plans? And do you plan to be involved in wrestling at all? I, I know that you're moving to Florida, so, um, which has got plenty of wrestling down there, too. Yeah, so. you know, it, yeah, I'm excited about that because they do, they have lots of event wrestling down there and different events. And I don't know, I'll find something down there to uh aw's hub they're right out of jacksonville oh are they yeah you should go i think you you really enjoy it because the guy that owns it tony khan whose dad is a multi-million dollar nfl owner of the jacksonville jaguars but tony used to go when he was a kid to ecw but he really has a love for the history of wrestling and he's like sam 
you'll go out and talk and hug and shake hands with the fans and sign autographs and you know where you never see vince jr ever do that stuff and, no. you know, i'll have to drag barbara with me because she she likes going to that kind of stuff so yeah i have to drag her to some of those i and the rama Otta lives there she'll drag you to stuff too who Otta Maivia, Otta uh, Rocky Johnson's uh, ex-wife. Yeah, she's in uh, Miami. Oh, in Miami. That's. I'm going to be in the uh, Daytona Beach area. Is that near where Barbara is? I think it is. Yeah, Barbara's oh. in uh, Ormond by the Sea, which is just past Ormond Beach. So she's about 20 minutes from there. Well, that sounds exciting, and and. And, you know, it's great to have you as our guest for this week. Can you tell our fans, if they want to get in touch with you, how they can get in touch with you through social media? I am on Facebook as Darla Staggs, and that is the only social media. Okay. Well, that's uh, you only need one thing for people. That's to... all I can keep up with. I can't, I can't keep up with. Twitter and Instagram. I do have an Instagram account, but I don't do anything with it. I just go out and look at other people's stuff. That's kind of the way with me. Well, Carlos, we'll have you back on when you move to Florida. We're going to want to hear about the experience and whether okay. Barbara and maybe Otta drag you to some shows. Or uh, get Barbara on here. We'd love to have her. Yeah, on. you know, I, I talked to her briefly on Saturday and... Um, I for, forgot to uh, mention it to her, but I will. Do you want me to uh, have her get in touch with you? or? You no, I, I just asked her like a week ago, but I forgot to tell her you were going to be on. So oh. You did great, and then we're going to have you back on you know, as soon as you move there. When, when, the move is next September next year? Yep. We'll yep. get you back yeah, September. Uh, Maybe we'll it? have you and Barbara on at the same time. Oh, that'd be fun to have us both because, you know, so, Mike, do you know Pam Morrison, JJ's daughter? She used to come all the time. Yeah, yeah. so, so JJ. Pam and Barbara and I are kind of like the three musketeers. You know, we go to Waterloo together and CAC. This year at CAC, we're renting a, a suite for the girls, so... Yeah, Pam's our other uh, partner in crime. Speaking of women, I got to tell you where we're CAC is going back to. Is, uh -huh. I was part of the LIWA board with Carl Lauer for Moolah. You know, and Moolah and Mae Young kind of aggressively took over the Ladies International Wrestling Association from its actual founders of Penny Banner, Ray Stevens, wrestling wife, Teresa Thies and Betty Clark. And uh, they form this thing to raise funds for a retirement home and a wrestling hall of fame for women wrestlers they would you know welcome any male you know that was destitute and needed some help in their senior years but anyway so moolah uh and may kind of take it over get rid of the three respected founders some controversy there in the you know around 93 when they took it over but i was on their board but that that was the site of CAC this year is where Mula always had her conventions and Carl always, that's where he said he had this love of Vegas and he loved that hotel. So when we moved uh, to Vegas in 2000, I think two years later for two years in a row, we had it at Mula's hotel, the Union Plaza station and uh, Dean Silverstone each year, like 
left early. He got into some argument with the hotel folks and he left before the CAC even started. <laughs> but that's where we had it. So there's a long sort of a lineage and it dates back to the 90s when Carl and I had to go to the hotel. It's been renovated and all of this stuff. So, but yeah, it's, it's on Fremont Street, not on the strip where all the fun is. Right. Because um, the first one I attended was 04 and it was at the plaza and it was okay. But, you know, it was right there next to the bus station and all the homeless people sitting out there was kind of scary. But they tell me that's uh, not an issue either. Because if you, had a car because the first year I went I rented a car you had to the plaza didn't have their own parking and you had to park back behind the bus station and then walk out in front of it and it was kind of creepy but they tell me you don't have to do that anymore but I won't rent a I car there because we've been at the I called it the old coast the gold coast why the move from the gold coast well I think think from what I understand is the um, contract was up and they were just looking for somewhere different to go and I guess that's what they decided well uh, well, well I'll I'll be asking for a report on it uh, it's next September like the 21st or something but Darla I'm going to have you back on obviously it's yes we'd love to have you as a, you're very charming and uh, really appreciate your your insight and your input what about the three of you guys because I tried contacting Pam when uh, I was a little concerned about her dad uh, JJ for a while but I'll off air a little later on in this week. Yeah, we can oh, yeah, we can talk about that off air. He is gonna be at um the NWA seventy four. Yeah, so yeah, he's gonna be one of the big check that out. But all right, we're we're out of time for this week. So we really all appreciate right. that hour just went by so fast, but we really yeah, love having you love to have you on in the future. So that's it for this week, everyone. We'll see everyone next week. Good night, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Darla. You're welcome. Bye-bye.